and uh, we aren't covering all of them. Um, I've done this before. There are probably, I don't know if we could get uh, probably 30 or more messages uh, from the reasons why Christ came, what he said he came to do. So there isn't one thing that he came to do. We need to understand that, by the way. It's not a one thing. It's easy to think, well, he just came to save sinners. That's one thing. He also says, by the way, that he came to bear witness of the truth. That's another thing. And that's something altogether, it's not altogether different, of course. But it's part of the one grand act of giving there. But there are many things accomplished by the giving of Christ. And tonight I want to point out another one of those in Mark 10 and verse 45. Notice what the Bible says. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. So tonight I want to preach to you that Jesus came for the elect. Jesus came for the elect. That's why Mark says, for many, not for all, but for many. Jesus came for the elect. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that we can enjoy a time in your word tonight and meditating on uh, your gift that's particularly for us as your people who have been called out of darkness to walk in your marvelous light. I thank you that you've called us and that uh, in that call is our salvation. I pray that we would treasure what you've done for us in particular, that we would not feel guilty about it as if there's something wrong in us as your people receiving from you uh, this, all this goodness and all this grace, but rather that we would be grateful for it, that we wouldn't think that there's some fault in you or some failure in you because you have reserved grace especially for your people who you've called to salvation. And I pray that instead of accusing you, that we would be grateful to you. And I ask that as I preach tonight, that I would be able to help your church to understand this more. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. I use the word elect, and I understand right off the bat, now anytime a preacher uses the word elect, everybody's like, oh no, what's he gonna say? Did he choose tonight to be the night he becomes a heretic? Now, in part, we're afraid of the word because we don't understand the word. We've heard people speak as if elect, and this is how we associate it today. In our minds, elect means arbitrary. Elect means unfair. Elect means that God must have played some divine game of eeny, meeny, miny, moe and chose the winners and the losers and, and thrown away the losers and picked people for heaven and people for hell and so on. That's what we associate the word with because we associate the word with Calvinism and because of some of the excesses of Calvinism. We're afraid of a biblical term like elect or election. But it's not our purpose here to avoid terminology because someone might associate it with Calvinism or someone might construe us 
as being Calvinists. I don't have a desire to be a Calvinist, no, and I also don't preach in order to avoid the church either. We have to be faithful to the Word of God. If faithfulness to Scripture makes me sound Calvinistic, then so be it. As a friend of mine said, as a preacher, if you never get accused of being a Calvinist, then you aren't preaching the gospel faithfully. The word elect is a scriptural word. If we love the King James Version, then we ought to love that word and we ought to use that word. And let me add to this that everyone here who names the name of Christ, who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has repented and turned from their false beliefs and is resting their eternal hope on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are one of the elect. You should not look at that. You know, okay, so if you're really grateful for your parents, do you think that God did something evil in giving other kids different parents than yours? Huh? Did God do something bad to give them other parents? Of course not. God was good to you. And our response should be gratitude for what God has done. The fact that among all the people of the world, that the gospel was preached to you in such a way that you would turn from your sins and receive Christ as your Savior, you're blessed. And we should be grateful in response. The word elect is a scriptural word. It appears 27 times in the Bible, 23 of those in the New Testament. Romans 8.33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 2 through 4, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. 1 Peter 1 and verse 2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So this is the way the Bible refers to you. There's no, that's not a derogatory mark against God that he calls you elect, chosen, one that he has especially chosen for blessing and grace and salvation. That marks you as a blessed person. Be grateful for that. The Bible makes it clear that God chose us, in fact, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. This is how God describes it. It is a choice, essentially. We can say that God, who is eternal, there's not anything ever in history that has entered his mind 
And that means that for throughout all of eternity, you have been in the heart and mind of God. You have been part of his good intention. He had good intentions towards you, and you are blessed that way. Now, how he does this, how he goes about this thing of electing, and how he chooses, I cannot say, you cannot say, we cannot say. Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. God alone knows how he does this, how this works, how this operates, and yet every one of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ knows also the wrestling and the struggling and the fear and the doubt and the concern and the many times when you thought to yourself, I can't believe it. I don't want to believe it. I don't want to be saved. Right, we got to spend some time with some of you on, uh, or right before Christmas uh, at the Rivera's house, and we were going around the room and giving testimonies, and person after person talked about how they didn't want to surrender. They didn't want to come to faith in Jesus Christ. They did not want to do that. Somehow, God has sovereignly designed it in such a way that he is sovereign and we are free and yet he saves us and calls us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. I can't answer or resolve how this happens. We know that his choice is not arbitrary. We know that he chooses on the basis of his own holy love, not on the basis of anything we do, not even foreseen faith. Acts 13, 48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. That's the way the Bible says it. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. I love the way a friend of mine described it. As we are coming to faith in Christ, the sign over the gate reads, Whosoever will may come. And after we've passed through the gate, when we look back, the sign on the back says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. Somehow, God works sovereignly on our will in such a way that we respond in faith and repentance to the gospel call. And we know that God is the one in charge, the one in control, and yet we know that we were entirely free to walk away. And we did not. The glory belongs to him. 
and the benefit belongs to me. I find the idea of election, honestly, I, I have to say I find it wonderful. It, it just astounds me, overwhelms me. It does not bother me that I can't explain it. I just find it so very scriptural, scriptural. That God willingly, intentionally loves a sinner like me and grants me redemption. Jesus came for me. That's what I'm saying. Jesus came for the elect. If you are born again, Jesus came for you. <clears throat> for God hath not appointed us to wrath, 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 9 says, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. God appointed you to that. God is good. Now Jesus Christ came for other reasons, as I have pointed out to you. But he certainly came for the elect. Jesus came to save us and call us with the holy calling to make us joint heirs with himself and to give us eternal life. And I intend to highlight a few of the best things about each of these things. I hope that you'll be blessed as you hear it. Jesus came to save us and call us with a holy calling. That's the first thing. He came, so under that, a part of that is that he came to redeem us. To redeem us. We must be set free from the bondage that we are in. And so the Bible tells us in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. For many. Jesus came to redeem his elect. In order to redeem us, a ransom had to be paid. Now, Jesus did not owe a ransom to the devil. He did not pay a ransom to the devil. Jesus never has owed the devil anything, and the devil never has had a legitimate claim on any of us. The devil is a thief, he is a liar, he is a murderer, and nobody buys off a murderer. Nobody buys off a thief. The thief needs, if anything, Satan owes a debt to God, which he will never repay. But God certainly did not owe anything to Satan. There was no ransom to be paid to him. The ransom was not paid to sin. The ransom price that Jesus paid was his own lifeblood, not just poured out, but poured out in death. It's key to say both of those things. That it had to be blood shed in death. The lifeblood that was poured out. That was the ransom. And the price of our redemption was paid to God himself. It was owed to God because God was the one offended. God was the one who needed justice. And the justice was the death of Jesus Christ. The ransom that needed to be paid was paid to God himself. And so Paul in Ephesians 5 says, And walk in love 
as Christ also hath loved us and hath given himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling savor. So the Bible is telling us that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was an offering made to God, that he poured out his lifeblood to satisfy God's justice, God's demands for justice, and Jesus did exactly that. <clears throat> Hebrews 9 and verse 14, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, listen, to God, purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Now, you can say that it was brutal or sadistic on the part of God the Father that he would demand the lifeblood of his own son, but I want you to understand that it was nothing of the sort. It was all grace and all goodness on God's part because we are the criminals. We are the ones who have offended God by our sin. And his wrath against our sin is justified. We have earned it. But God, in his goodness and grace, has provided a substitute to be the sacrifice in our place to take our sins on himself and then to pour out his lifeblood to be a ransom for those who believe. Jesus gave his life a ransom for many as our text says it. The offer of salvation is, of course, to all. It is available to all. The ransom is paid, though, for all those who believe. And then he came, secondly, to forgive us. For this is my blood of the New Testament, Jesus said, which is shed, now notice this, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Not only did he give his life a ransom, but he also forgave our sins. <clears throat> he didn't ransom us, but then leave us chained to the memories and especially the guilt of our past sin. He didn't do that. This is a good thing. This is, this is grace on God's part. He did not leave us bound to the guilt or the sense of shame for our sin. He didn't leave us bound to that. He absolved us, pardoned us, forgave us of the responsibility for our sins. He did this not by giving our sins a pass, not by just dismissing it, but instead by transferring the guilt and the responsibility to Jesus Christ so that Jesus Christ paid for that sin in full. God the Father did this, not by giving our sins a pass, but laying our sins on Jesus and punishing our sins in Jesus. Because Jesus took the consequences for our sins, we therefore are released from those consequences. And because Jesus paid the penalty, our sins are not then just covered. <coughs> That's a beautiful thing. Our sins are not merely covered. They are removed, absolved, forgotten. Thirdly, Jesus came to justify us. Now this goes beyond forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is necessary so that we can be acquitted for our sins, but we must also be justified. <clears throat> that is to say, uh, we must be found innocent. There must be, because there are charges laid at our feet. There are charges against us, and we are guilty of those charges. And <clears throat> the guilty cannot stand before God. And so there must be an official <coughs> declaration that we are absolved, that we are not guilty. So God did this through Christ. He didn't do this by, you know, a, as I've said it before, he didn't create a legal fiction. He didn't just say, I'm just going to forget about it. I'll just declare you not guilty, even though you are. No, he didn't do that. He laid those sins on Jesus, and Jesus became the guilty party, and you were declared not guilty. <clears throat> now, in light of that, we should pause to consider three verses that seem somewhat contradictory in Scripture. The first one is in Proverbs 17, verse 15. He that justifieth the wicked, and he that condemneth the just, even they both are abomination to the Lord. So the Lord finds it abominable when someone declares a guilty person not guilty. The second thing I want to show you is from Romans 4 and verse 5. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Okay, so Proverbs says that it is an abomination to the Lord for you to declare a person, to justify a wicked person. And then Romans 4 and verse 5 says that God is such a person, such a one who declares the ungodly justified. He justifies the ungodly. And Romans 3 and verse 26 says, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of them that believe, them which believe in Jesus. So it's an abomination to declare someone not guilty when they are guilty. And yet God justifies the ungodly. <clears throat> in fact, we can go so far as to say that the elect, we could define the elect <coughs> as wicked people who have been justified by God. And that isn't an, an abomination at all. It isn't an abomination because of the way that Jesus has justified the ungodly. Now, when men justify wicked men, they make excuses for them. They call evil good and good evil, and God hates that. That's an abomination. But when God justifies the ungodly, he doesn't just, he doesn't pretend. He doesn't play games. He takes the sin and the guilt of that sin, and he assigns it to Jesus Christ and holds Jesus responsible for our sin, and then he punishes our sin, pours out his wrath against that sin, so that the sin has been dealt with, justice 
has been served. And then, having removed the sin from you, he declares you not guilty. That's what he does. <clears throat> so Jesus shed blood, canceled the guilt of our crime. As Romans 5, 9 says it, we are now justified by his blood. But there must also be found righteousness, and the Bible teaches that Jesus has provided for this as well. It is not enough that you have been absolved of your sin. It is not enough that you have been declared, legally declared not guilty. But God must also, he insists, that he must also find righteousness, and Jesus Christ has provided for that as well, because he has imputed his own righteousness to your account, so that there is this wonderful exchange that has been made, and this is, this is what marks the elect from the unbeliever. The difference is in the exchange that's been made, because the unbeliever maintains his guilt, holds on to his sin. But in the believer's case, our sins have been assigned to Jesus and his righteousness has been assigned to us. The word that we use is imputed righteousness. <clears throat> because I do not have any righteousness that could commend me to God, Jesus puts his own righteousness to my account, and I am credited for it as if it were mine. And this is possible because of the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ. And this is accomplished, in fact, through faith. Philippians 3 and verse 9, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. That's the righteousness. First of all, our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, so they are unacceptable to a holy God. But then secondly, the righteousness that God accepts is the righteousness which is of God by faith. We receive by faith from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the basis for our acceptance with God. Romans 5.19, for as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. So there are two reasons why it's not abominable for God to justify the ungodly. First of all, the death of Jesus Christ paid the debt of my unrighteousness. God declares me, therefore, not guilty because the debt is paid. No more debt. And secondly, the obedience of Jesus is imputed to us so that we can be declared righteous. For he hath made him to be sent for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Again, this is true of the elect. This is true of the believer. So Jesus came to redeem us, to forgive us, to justify us, and he came then to release us from condemnation. 
Romans 5, I'm sorry, Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. More good news for the elect. It's just good news upon good news upon good news. Jesus has not left anything undone. We are not condemned before God. The world may condemn us, often does condemn us, but the Bible says, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Sometimes the severest condemnation that we face is at our own hands because, again, I talked about this last week, but the guilt that we carry, the shame for past sins that we just can't let go of, that weigh us down and burden us and that we bear about. It's hard for us sometimes because we say, you know, it's hard to forgive myself. It's hard to just let this go. But this is what the Bible says. <clears throat> we know our own selves. We know our own hearts very well. We see the pride. We see the selfishness. We see the bitterness. We see the envy. We see the lust, the covetousness, the coldness, the apathy, the fear. We are acquainted, well acquainted with all of our ways. And we ask, how could God forgive a sinner like me? Sometimes even our question becomes a question of desperation. How could someone who sins the way I do think that he is forgiven and saved? But the Bible teaches that Jesus came to cleanse our conscience so that we will not condemn ourselves. And Jesus did this two ways. First, he shed his own blood, not only to remove our guilt before God, but also to remove our guilt before ourselves. Hebrews 9 and verse 14 says, How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, listen to this, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The blood of Jesus is such a powerful cleansing agent to cleanse away the guilt and shame that you feel that the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse you even of those sins that you struggle to let go of, the guilt that you carry and you feel he is able to cleanse that away. <clears throat> Joel Beakey said, when our conscience rises up and condemns us, where will we turn? 
We turn to Christ. We turn to the suffering and death of Christ, the blood of Christ. This is the only cleansing agent in the universe that can give the conscience relief in life and peace in death. The second thing that Jesus did was to reconcile us to God so that our relationship with God is restored. But Jesus went beyond this. There's a higher, better relationship between God and man than the creator-creature relationship. Because, let's face it, unbelievers also have that relationship with God. The, cre the, the same relationship that a creature has to its creator. And we, as the elect of God, we are called to a higher order of relationship with God than just what the creature has to the creator. Jesus came to give us a father-son relationship with God. And the Bible says this multiple times. Romans 8, 15, for example, for we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. In Galatians 4 and verse 6, And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And 1 John 3 and verse 1, perhaps the clearest of all, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Now this is what the Bible is telling you. That that guilt that you carry, and that shame, and that remorse over past sins, that you can't undo, and you can't forget. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cleanse your conscience, to purge your conscience and release you from that. And that Jesus, by his death, has, has given you an entirely new kind of relationship to God that you did not know until you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And that relationship is that God now is your father. You are adopted. One of his children. Jesus has done everything necessary to set us right with God and to keep us right with God. And that is such a wonderful thing. We don't have to rely on our own ability to be faithful to God. Isn't that good? He came to give us faith and to keep us faithful. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. He has made me a new creature. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life which I now live, in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me 
and gave himself for me. He came to make us holy, for by one offering he had perfected forever them that are sanctified. And as with everything else, he did everything he did through his death on the cross. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. He did all this for you. The second thing, big thing I want to show you tonight is that Jesus came to make us joint heirs with himself. So it's not just that you're an adopted son, but you're kept out on the fringes. You're treated like a stepchild. Oh no. Jesus Christ did all of that. Think of the self-giving in that. He did all of that because he wanted to share his inheritance with you as a joint heir. He came to give us an inheritance, <clears throat> Romans 8, 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The best part of our inheritance is that in inheriting from Christ, we don't just inherit his wealth or his riches. We inherit his holy nature. We are made, remade into the image of Jesus Christ himself. This is promised in its fullness when we enter eternity, but in the present, we are being remade into the image of Christ. We partake of his virtues through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. We taste his goodness in the Lord's Supper. We anticipate the day of redemption when we shed the fleshly elements of our body. And then finally, Jesus came to give us eternal life. He came to take us to heaven. He died for us that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. 1 Thessalonians 5.10 <clears throat> It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. 2 Timothy 2.11 And 2 Corinthians 5.8 We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So this inheritance that God has given through Christ includes the very nature of Jesus Christ that is impressed upon you and imparted to you, and you are being transformed into that. But then also is the promise of eternal life, that for all eternity, you will be able to enjoy the presence of God. And all of this because you are one of the elect, one that God has called to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus came to save his lost creation, and you that have believed, you receive all the benefit of that. You don't get any of the glory, you don't want any of the glory, but you get all of the blessing, all of it. Our race, the human race, was ruined by the fall. The one thing that made us valuable, apart from all the rest of creation, the one thing that gave us value and beauty in the world 
was the image of God that was placed on us, stamped on us. And our sin ruined that image, defaced that image. But I hate to use the word ruin because ruin gives the impression that it is beyond repair. It is beyond repair if it comes to us. We deface the image of God that was on us, and every effort we make to repair it defaces it more. But the Lord Jesus Christ came to remake us into the image of himself. Jesus came to restore our lost humanity, and by his death on the cross, he has enabled us to be remade into the image of God once again by being transformed into his own image. Aren't we blessed? Again, the problem, and I, I use the word elect, and I, you know, like five or six times during the message, I'm thinking, Maybe I should use a different word, but that's the word the Bible uses to describe us. And there is, I think, this temptation for us to think that there's some default, some, some fault in God that there are those who are elect and those who are not elect. It wouldn't bother us so much. Doesn't that say something about us? It wouldn't bother us so much if we said some of us are saved and some of us are unsaved or some people are unsaved, right? We don't see anything wrong with that. Listen, I think that the point is, for however God did it, and for whatever reason, that's beyond us. But God singled you out for blessing. God called you out and chose to bless you who believe. Let's be grateful. Let's thank him. This is reason why he is worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can spend the time tonight in your word and meditate on these things. And Lord, and we've heard the gospel many times over, and yet when we hear it again in a fresh light and from a new angle, it reminds us again of just how good you've been to us. And we thank you for it. And Lord, I pray that you would help us, that we would delight ourselves in you, that we would be full of gratitude, that we would not stop praising you. I pray that during this holiday time, as we enjoy a little extra time together, I pray that we would also spend some extra time thanking you and praising you and rejoicing in you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Two announcements.